Hello and welcome to Nightlight. A few days ago, as I often do, I was wrestling with what direction to go in our time together. And I started to pick back up on a study of the book of Job that I have been intending to tackle for years, actually. But I would always talk myself out of it because uh, I tried to to prepare messages that can only be contained in one hour together. Obviously, the book of Job is not one that you can contain in one hour. But while I was wrestling with that question and pretty well deciding not to go that direction, again deciding not to go that direction, I got an email from a dear lady in uh, the Seattle area and it simply said, you know, a couple of years ago, several years ago, you mentioned doing a study on the book of Job, and you never have done it, and I need it. <laughs> and I would be glad to do that study just for her, but it, it occurred to me that maybe the Holy Spirit was saying to me, this needs to be addressed on many, many levels, although, as I said, just her her need would be enough. But... Not long ago, I got a phone call from a a family that had gone through an unusual degree of difficulty with one of their, two of their children, and a lot of health crises. And uh, they were very forthright and honest uh, when they said, look, we feel like we've been through the, the struggles of Job. And we really would like to study the book of Job. Well, I remember the first time I tried to read Job. I've told this story before, but in uh, 1977, I was 23 years old. And I was in the grips of my worst struggles on the inside with my own secret addictions and my own uh, emotional suffering that would always result from my giving in to those addictions, as well as the self-condemnation and spiritual conflict that all of that would uh, awaken in anybody's life. And I was no exception. My life was a shambles privately, while publicly it appeared very healthy and spiritual and moving in the right direction. But I decided I would read the book of Job straight through one night. I just took the phone off the hook and locked the doors and shut the windows and locked myself into my little apartment and uh, read through all 42 chapters. And like typical Western uneducated non-Hebraic thinking, Greco-Roman thinking people that we are. I fully expected to read the story, understand the development and character developments of the story, come to the climax of the story, and finally have a happy ending. Well, Job, some people might consider Job to have a happy ending, because he gets a bunch of his 
livestock back and, and gets his children restored, uh, the number of his children restored. And like some people have said, well, he, he got double his sheep and he got double his camels, camels and he got double his uh, livestock stock. Uh, and he got double his children because his ten children were in heaven and then he gets ten more. I thought, well, that's that's a valid point, I guess. Uh, well, it really is a valid point. But I was not really interested in livestock. I wanted a clear answer that would meet my needs for the immediate, which is pretty typical of my generation at that time. And there was no answer, and there was no clear beginning, progression, and end of the book. And I got plain angry. I, I, I threw my Bible like a Frisbee across my apartment. I'm not joking. I'm not, I'm not trying to impress anybody with my uh, boldness in that. I'm, I'm a little ashamed of it. I say a little ashamed. Because as I've grown with the Lord and walked with him, uh, I don't think he was nearly as upset over that action as I later became as I got more uh, religiously attuned to how I, quote, should have responded. Here's, here's why I say that. How many of you remember, if you saw Forrest Gump, when uh, Lieutenant Dan crawled up in the crow's nest in the middle of the hurricane and shook his fist in God's face and yelled and screamed and said, come on, let's you and me have it out. And a lot of Christians were really put off by that. Oh my goodness, that was so blasphemous. Well, I, I wasn't put off by it at all. I understood it, absolutely understood it. And I thought it was very insightful of the otherwise blind Hollywood movie makers that the very next scene you see is Lieutenant Dan thanking Forrest for saving his life, being grateful that he's alive and pushing himself off the end of the pier into the water and peacefully swimming toward the sunset. And Forrest says, in that scene, I think Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God. Well, how in the world do you make your peace with God uh, yelling and screaming and shaking your fist? Dr. Michael Brown has written a wonderful commentary on Job, which was a really hard, demanding task for him because uh, there's lots of commentaries on Job, but uh, uh, he's done an outstanding job of uh, dealing with some of the most difficult details in Job. And he points out that Job Job is ancient and written in very, very obscure, difficult Hebrew. Not, not easy to translate at all. But uh, the point of me bringing that up is that Job is full of answers to hard questions, but they are not sitting on the top shelf with the wrapping taken off with a sign above it saying, here, be my guest, eat all you want.
these these concepts and these issues have to be struggled with. And uh, the reason I mentioned Michael Brown's book is uh, it's subtitled Job and with faith enough to challenge God. And that's exactly what Lieutenant Dan was doing. He was challenging God, which means he believed in God, which means he was having had enough faith in the invisible real to have a real, naked, open, honest conflict and conversation with that God. And God likes that. It's not just Job. You see that in the Psalms. You see it in the prophets. God likes that, if I can use that colloquialism. God, God wants you to believe in him. He who comes to me must believe that I am and that I'm a, I'm a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And some little namby-pamby from the neck up religious prayer that acts like God is either not really there or not really interested or uh, whatever is not going to get God's attention. But what, what will get God's attention is an honest, desperate plea that may even have some anger in it. Why are you, why are you not showing up, God? What, are you asleep? Some of the Psalms say, have you gone to sleep? Have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Have you forgotten to be true? And, and I'll tell you, if you have never felt that way before, or I, I, if you've never let yourself admit that you've felt that way before, First of all, you're not hiding it from God. He knows it. Secondly, you're being dishonest to both God and yourself. And thirdly, if you get in touch with it it enough to turn it into honest prayer, that in itself is a healing event because it unites your heart into oneness and integrity before God. It may be an integrity of anger. It may be an integrity of of disappointment. It may be an integrity of uh, mental and emotional struggle, but at least you're you're being integrated. You're, you don't have a smiley religious face on the outside and an angry raging face on the inside. And boy, have I met many church people who have that dichotomy. And it's causing mental illness. It's, cause, it's causing them to be mentally ill. Uh, they, they, they're living with uh, cognitive dissidence. The God uh, that they believe, they believe in and then the God that they really do believe in, and they are two separate gods. And and neither one of them sometimes are the real God. Or at least one of them is the real God, and the other one's not. But most of the time, neither one of them is the real God. The God you're angry at, uh, you're probably angry for something that God is not guilty of, that you're making him guilty of. Or uh, the God who... uh, is uh, guilty of what you're angry at because he's an, an angry, um, two-faced, malevolent, moody God who sometimes blesses and sometimes curses. It just depends on what mood he's in. Anyway, uh, so if you're gonna if you're gonna dig into Job, really read it. You're gonna have to be willing to. Have it read you while you're reading it. 
And uh, anybody who reads Job is either zooming through it for their daily Bible readings and uh, only reading it from the neck up, or they are plunging into it. And I can tell you, if they plunge into it, they're going to be in, in in it on levels that they don't really want to talk about pr- to other people. They're 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 wrestling through their own private time with God, wrestle re- wrestling match with God. And after they come through that wrestling match, they will not have answers that they can then turn and give to you, so that you don't have to dig through it yourself, because you got you got their answers. No. They'll look at you and smile and say, I found my answer, and you can find it too. You you can't have mine. My answer is not yours, and your answer won't be good for somebody else. We all have our own, our own struggles. And I've, even though I've told you all this story before uh, several times, I'm, I'm sure I've report, repeated it about throwing my Bible across the room. Uh, I went to bed that night angry and yet feeling invited further up and further in. Uh, and my anger turned to quiet peace. You know how a child can be raging and angry and you pick him up and uh, his raging fit finally subsides into a quiet sob in your in your shoulder? I kind of felt that way with the Lord that that night. Uh, My rage went into just quiet sorrow. And uh, then from there, I was able, like Lieutenant Dan, who who made his peace with God, I kind of fell backwards into the water, so to speak, and uh, peacefully swam toward the sunset (laughs) or the sunrise because uh, the next day I woke with a, a sense of hope that I'd not had before. Now that's my experience. That, that may not be yours. Your experience. I'm sure it, it, yours will be suited just for you. But uh, I mentioned Oswald Chambers and his book that he wrote at the beginning of World War One, or really at, not the beginning, at, at the middle, in the middle of World War One, when it became obvious to to England and to the, the British people as well as the rest of Europe and the world that this army uh, this this armed conflict was going to be more than just an armed conflict that it was going to not only uh, be a protracted horror unlike any horror that had ever occurred in the history of the world World War one was insanity absolute insanity and uh, historians who are awake and truthful will tell you it was the most irrational avoidable stupid act of aggression of one another uh, imaginable but at the same time that it was humanly stupid and evil God was using it, although God certainly was not making it happen, but he was using it to remold the map of the world and put the nations in position to go forward into what eventually then became World War II, more insanity. But uh, 
a, a clearer purpose in World War II of, of truly fighting against evil, but still, war is always a curse. Uh, and it was it was Chambers writing uh, and giving these lectures in the middle of this horrible war, where every every home in England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, every home in the British Isles and uh, around the world, but especially uh, England and Ireland. And I, of course, I feel I feel particularly close to to them because not only of my heritage, but but because of our close abiding love for the British Isles. But uh, every, try to imagine going from the happy Victorian era, which yes had its problems, but for the most part, as Chesterton says of, of Vic, the Victorian England, the happiest people at the happiest in the happiest nation at the happiest time of all of history. That, that's how he describes the Victorian era. Certainly there was lots of poverty, but even among the poverty-stricken of England, there was a sense of belonging and, and joy and connectedness and family life, and uh, with terrible, horrible exceptions, yes, because of the sinfulness of all of us, but, but for the most part, uh, even some of your worst stories from the Victorian era, unless you really deal with the Jack the Ripper horrors, things like things on that level, the, the British people were were happy, and the, there was a middle class that had grown up in that time, and uh, they were as close to what we have known in our in our era as untouched by the sorrow of the world as any culture had ever been, with a veneer of religiosity that was enough to satisfy the status quo of moralism. Uh, and every now and then some outbursts of spiritual reality would be would show up like Spurgeon or uh, the uh, Salvation Army things, manifestations of the real kingdom of God but all I'm saying there is try to imagine what it's like to grow up in that and uh, another thing Chesterton said about the Victorian era is he said they they thought the world had ended well because they thought the world had ended with them. And I I can remember as a boy thinking, man, you know, we came through World War One and World War Two and Korea and the bomb and things look like they're gonna turn out okay. <laughs> I remember thinking that. I was sitting on my bicycle. And uh, I was probably in, in the seventh maybe eighth grade, and I was sitting on my bicycle and I just had this thought that, man, the world is, it really had a happy ending because it's ending with us. I didn't know I was quoting the Victorians or Chesterton about the Victorians, but the point is, we've all lived, and how many of us are, are aware of this? Thankfully, my kids say things that let me know they're aware of it that they are blessed beyond imagination, even if they don't have the car they'd like or the home they'd like or the amenities. I mean, even the most, even the most uh, uh, 
lower middle class or even upper poor class economically lives like a king compared to the kings of the ancient world or the kings right up to to the uh, the monarchies of, of Europe recent monarchies we've just we've just been overloaded with every amenity for our comfort known to man. Well, sorry, the Victorians, and that all all of a sudden, not all, not all, all it, I say all of a sudden, it wasn't all of a sudden, but because they lived in a bubble of false security, they were not aware that slowly but surely Europe was becoming an armed camp. And they didn't know Forgive me for going off maybe too much on the history of this era, but it's important, I think. They did not know, the Victorian people did not realize that during this long extended period of seeming peace in Europe and prosperity in Europe, the the Habsburgs, the, the, the Germanic people in uh, uh, Austria and England and France had spent a, a great deal of their prosperity in experimenting with and building up more and more armaments for, for warfare. They just built and built and built killing machines that had never been tested and uh, had war capabilities that had never been worked out with any reason or wisdom. And so when things exploded in Europe, when the lit when the when the fuse was lit by the uh, uh assassination of the Archduke in in Sarajevo, that didn't light the fuse immediately, but it lit the fuse. It was a very slow burning but certain fuse that finally led to the explosion in Europe that was called finally World War One, and all those armaments were let loose with no wisdom and no godliness. I mean, you you can't have godliness overseeing uh, something birthed out of sheer hubris and arrogance, power without humility, power without wisdom. And millions and millions and millions of the boy next door was not just slaughtered, but as C.S. Lewis says of the battlefield that he was on during World War One, young men looked like beetles who'd been stepped on by a boot, crawling across one another with broken limbs and broken faces and broken torsos. Uh, the horror of that, that era. Uh, I, don't, I don't think any of us have ever been properly educated about the horror of that, that whole so-called world war, the war to end all wars. Foolish statement. Well, there was no house on your street if you lived in England at that time that did not have a black crash over it. Uh, every house had signs of deep 
deep grief. Remember the opening scene, one of the opening scenes in Chariots of Fire where the the, the grand uh, f- feast, the welcoming the students uh, back to to Oxford and the uh, the teacher who oversaw that that moment said I, I cannot but help uh, to, to feel the depth of grief as I look up and read the names of those who went before you who will not come back of course I'm slaughtering the quotation but you get my point uh, I live on a very sweet, peaceful street for the most part. And it's sad to me that I have to make a real effort to meet my neighbors. We don't know each other very well. But, I mean, we are making progress. And Mary and I both got the word from the Lord uh, to start being more mindful of loving the people that are right around us, that are right near us, and not uh, hiding from them. But uh, just imagine knowing everybody on your street and grieving all of their losses at once. All of them have sons that will not come back. Well, I'm trying to press a point here, maybe too, too much, but it was in this agony where the quiet, peaceful, happiness of Victorian religiosity was shattered and shattered and shattered again to the point that many, many people seemingly had lost their faith. But as Chambers wisely saw, they did not lose their faith in God. They lost their faith in religion. And they might have appeared to be atheists. How can a God let this happen? How can the God uh, that we thought was our God, uh, oh God, our help in ages past, our, our hope for years to come, be, be thou our God while life shall last in our eternal home. How can that be true? It's just a hymn. It's just a song. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame from everlasting, thou art God from age to age the same. Really? Are you the same? My childhood was peaceful. My, my, my neighborhood has known prosperity and joy and friendliness. And church has been a, a stable, even if a staple and a, a stabilizing force, even if it was not really lived out fully. At least it brought some some stability and some sanity to our lives. Where is this God who is our help in ages past and is still our help when the whole world has gone insane? When every day war news is just another name, another list of names for, for, the, for the coming funerals or body parts or the people that survived are trying to find a way to make a living because they don't have an arm or a leg or arms or legs or their face is shattered. And they're everywhere. 
Well, Chambers points out that now we know that the basis of life is tragedy. The basis of life is tragedy. Oh, I think of it as I get older, maybe I, I can remember riding down the beachfront when my 20s with the windows down and the wind blowing through my hair and listening to my favorite rock music and how happy and how peaceful and how carefree the world seemed. And I guess that's part of youth. That it's Children should have that. Little children should have that. Children should know nothing but play and joy and bonding and mealtime and sleepy time and puppies and butterflies and I mean, that's that's normal childhood, but we had it all the way into the mid-70s. It was just one big party. I know there were tragedies, but we could ignore the tragedies. We'd change the channel, for heaven's sakes. Now, in Vietnam, it intruded sometimes. I'll never forget the biggest snow we ever had in my boyhood was 1968. We had over a foot of snow in March. And I remember that day because we had our first funeral from Vietnam. A Vietnam soldier, boy that I looked up to from a distance because he was years older than me. And in his, uh, in his yearbook, right next to his senior picture, you know how they put little sayings in front of the pictures in your books next to Ronnie's picture it said they say the good die young I better take care of myself and he was the first casualty of Vietnam for our city, our town but you know I changed the channel I, I, I you know, got past that real quickly and uh, there were other tragedies but I got I got past them real quick and by the time I got into my own young adult self-centered world, I, I just kept the channels on on stations that made me feel good, made me made me happy. And by the end of the seventies, it seemed like the whole country had learned how to do that. And you go into the eighties, and there's just just prosperity on top of prosperity, and there's just uh, you know, I, I don't need to try to describe it to you. You've got your own version of it. You may be struggling to pay your bills, but even with all due respect, even if you are, you are still vastly rich compared to the rest of the world. I know you've heard people say that, but you need to believe it. You need to take it to heart so that if at least you can be a thankful, grateful person who, who who is grateful that you have a safe place to sleep at night and food to eat, even if it's not the quality of uh, lifestyle you'd like to have. That's not the point. The point is, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. We have a great inheritance as a nation and as an individual uh, person, for the most part. And that's what Victorian England was until World War One. 
showed the real nature of life. See, we think in America and in a lot of the West, we think that life is mostly wonderful and the mystery is trouble. I've got a series over here on our bookshelf called The Mystery of Evil and Suffering. Well, that's a lousy title. I'm going to redo it. Uh, I'm working on redoing it. You won't know I'm redoing it because it'll be a completely different approach. But the whole idea of the mystery of evil and suffering is is a misnomer. There is no great mystery about evil and suffering. The mystery is how goodness survives evil and suffering and blossoms and brings forth another another uh, harvest of good. That's the mystery. Evil and suffering, really, if, you, if your eyes are open, it's exactly what Oswald Chambers said. Uh, the, the foundation of all life is a tragedy. People die, don't they? Sometimes they die in a timely way. And sometimes they die like Ronnie in Vietnam, the good day young. Sometimes little children die and we don't know why. We don't understand why. Oh, we may know medically why, but we don't have the greater question of why answered. And many of you who listen to Nightlight are like me and Mary, you are you are caring enough of people to not allow yourselves to be duped by the falsehood that all of life is a party that now and then gets strangely un, uh, interrupted by, by trouble. No, you've lived long enough and been through enough and are battling in the spirit enough to know that the, the reality of the world is a tragedy that we are in occupied territory, that something is so wrong in the makeup of creation. Not originally, but now it has become the warp and woof of all existence. And as the book of Proverbs says, even in laughter the heart is sorrowful. How many times have I had the joy of one of my grandchildren's birthday parties or some other event in our family and the whole room is filled with light and love and laughter and yet I'm old enough now to be sitting over in the corner and thinking this will not always be so joyful. Life will have its ups and downs and I'm learning in the down times that up will be restored, but I'm learning in the up times not to be terrified of the downs because this whole thing is not right yet. And that's that's part of what we have to face when we start pulling back the curtain when we turn the pages that open up to the book called Job. Job is put in the context of Hebrew literature in in the topic, the heading of uh, wisdom literature. 
and it, this might help you remember, because the book of Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, excuse me, not Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Those three go together. Uh, think of, I, I saw one teacher use this, and I thought it was a good example. It's helpful. Proverbs is like a young, wise entrepreneur who is telling you, do this and you'll get this results. Do bad things and bad results will come from it. Do good things and good will come from it. And that's that's basically true in some ways. But then the wisdom of Jewish literature has the book of Ecclesiastes following the book of Proverbs. And it's just the opposite. Think of it as not a young entrepreneur, but an, a middle-aged, jaded businessman who's not so, not so certain that Good always produces good, and bad sometimes seems to get away with bad. And uh, it seems to totally contradict a lot of what's in Proverbs. Now, let me make, let me take an aside here. This this can stir up a, a really needed question that a lot of people have, and that is how how do you sort through the Bible, and how do you read the Bible? Uh, and if you've been raised in a church system that is so so preoccupied with protecting the uh, supernatural nature of the text that they're willing to dishonor God in order to protect the Bible, I mean, if, if, I know that may sound strange to some people, but uh, I've known I've known people that oh, I've known a lot of people. Uh, they gladly will dishonor God to protect their their doctrine. And they don't care what God may think of it. They want God to bow to their interpretation of Scripture. And so Scripture is actually the first in the in the Godhead. First you have the Bible and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the Bible's at the top. Well, there's a problem with putting the Bible at the top since God revealed himself to Abraham and there was no Bible. And uh, the whole early church functioned without a Bible. And yes, m many of them had uh, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, but many of them didn't. They just had the gospel, the news of Jesus. Anyway, that's way too big a subject to try to tackle here, but we've got to at least mention it in the context of Proverbs contradicting Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes says, there's really nothing to live for. Just do your best. Have a good time. Enjoy your work under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is a Hebrewism that means that which is not under heaven. It's earthly. It's carnal. It's that which is not 
spiritual, it's what we would, what we would call secular. And then, after you've got Proverbs telling you, do the right thing and you'll get the right results. Do the wrong thing, you'll always get punished for it. That's just the way it is. Then you got Ecclesiastes saying, I don't think that's true. I've seen, I've seen the wicked prosper and I've seen uh, good people hurt. Then we get to Job. Now the writer of Proverbs was not writing this in preparation to be a threesome with Ecclesiastes or Job. And the writer of, well, the writer of Ecclesiastes for the most part was Solomon, so he had a lot to do with Proverbs and he had a lot to do with uh, Ecclesiastes. But in one person you have this jaded contradiction, which is why Solomon ends up so mentally ill and so spiritually sick uh, he might have been the wisest man that ever lived on one level, but on another level, he's one of the most foolish men that ever lived. And even that is kind of bringing home the point. But we get to Job. We don't know who wrote Job. We don't know how old Job is. We don't know. We know Job is a very ancient book. And there's lots of uh, conjecture about it. Uh, some people think that Job actually lived in Egypt and was a uh, advisor to Pharaoh, and uh, and that when when uh, Moses and the children of Israel left his, uh, Egypt, they took the text of Job along with them and brought it, you know, brought it. Uh, into the Hebrew library of, of uh, writings. But it's quite obvious Job was not Hebrew. I mean, he was, he was a non-Hebrew, God-fearing worshiper of Yahweh. And uh, we may get into that more in detail because I'm almost certain I'll have to spend more time than just this on, on this. Uh, study, but what's the point of the three, the three categories of wisdom literature in the Hebrew text? Proverbs is wisdom on how to how to live. The good the good get good, and the bad get bad. Ecclesiastes says no, life's more of a crapshoot than that, and you can't really be dependent on. Uh, Always believing the the good turn out okay and the bad get what they, what's coming to them, and then you have the book of Job, which dramatizes this struggle. Because by the time you get to Job, this idea that that is propagated in religious circles and is still propagated in religious circles of all kinds, all kinds of religions most especially Christian religion and certain forms of Judaism that don't pay attention to the wisdom of Jewish literature, but just pay attention to keeping the rules. Job is telling us, among other things, there's a mystery in all of this. Sometimes, even though the, the words of Proverbs, if you do right, you'll get blessed. Yeah, that's true. 
But it's also true if you do right, sometimes it looks like you're a target. It's true if you if you do bad things, bad things happen, and and uh, you better learn to behave yourself. That's true. But it's also true that sometimes, more times than not, it seems like the wicked prosper and get away with evil. My gosh, that's all we've got in our government today is wickedness getting away with evil, seemingly. So, how do we work through the book of Job? How do we answer this question? Well, we have to confront Issues in Job that end up being issues in us. And that's why a lot of people don't like the book of Job. That's one reason why I threw it across the room. And I don't think I read it again for another 20 years or so. I do remember every now and then someone would preach on Job. But in the charismatic circles that I moved in, especially in that era, it's like they only knew one verse from Job. I mean, they only knew one. And, and they, that, uh, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. And uh, then they would go on and preach about how everything that happened to Job was directly because he had fear, and fear opens the door for the devil to operate. Yeah, there's truth in that. It'd be one of those proverbs that uh, you can go to and use as a proof text. Uh, I hope I don't cause more trouble for people than I'm trying to alleviate by saying this, but when it comes to proverbs, you ever read proverbs and go, you know, that that sounds so neat and pretty, but it's just not true to life. Like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging for bread. Well, I say this respectfully. I have. I have seen the righteous seemingly forsaken and, and them begging for bread. That's happening in many Many countries right now where the church is in open, openly being persecuted. This is where you, you under, you have to rightly divide the word of truth and hear, okay, there's a principle in, in life that, uh, the righteous don't, don't beg for bread and, and they, their, their seed is not out begging for bread and they're not forsaken. But, what are you going to do in the times when it does seem that that's really not true? Well, if you have any wisdom and you and you have the Holy Spirit guiding you in your Bible reading, you understand the principle is basically true, but when the principle is not true, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I hate using that phrase, baby out with the bathwater. We have so overused it. That it's just wearisome to use it. I got to find another metaphor. But we don't, we don't stop trusting God and walking with God because a principle that seems to be true turns out in this particular case not to be true. The Bible never was meant to be read that way. And, uh, 
it's not a book of spells that always works exactly the same way because God's not interested in you relating to him out of principles. I know Christian teachers and leaders, they talk more about principles than they ever talk about intimacy with God. I mean, that's... Uh, I, I don't... I don't want to name any organizations, but there's several Christian organizations on college campuses that are big time into teaching principles, these principles. And I've known many a young and even older people involved in those movements who are full of proverbs, full of principles full of religious dogma, but let a tragedy hit their life that doesn't line up with their principles and they shipwreck because they are not rooted and grounded in a a relationship with a person. They are rooted and grounded in those principles. This is the foundation of Phariseeism. When When the almighty God and creator of heaven and earth came to earth, and fulfilled all the scriptures right in front of their face. They rejected him because he didn't meet their dogmatic principles uh, according to their definitions. That's why Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, search the scriptures. I love the Eugene Peterson translation of that. You You got your face stuck in your Bible. Search the scriptures For in them you think you have life, but they point to me, and you will not get your nose out of the book long enough to come to me. Now, if I'm freaking you out, I know people who listen to Nightlight are not freaked out by that, but if you're a new listener, you you think, well, are are you preaching against Bible reading? I'm preaching against Bible reading if that's your, that's your fetish. You're so, you know, like people say, well, I haven't read my Bible in a week. I'm afraid God will kill me. Well, yeah, then quit reading your Bible for a month and get to know God and you won't say stupid things like that. Anyway, Job is meant to address this thing I'm talking about now. And those wonderful, sweet, good people that taught Job needed to be delivered from fear, and if he'd been delivered from fear, he wouldn't have had those troubles. I got news for him. That ain't what God said about Job. But who cares what God says about Job? All we care about is our principles. See? So some of Job's false comforters made statements to Job uh, very much like that. And at the end of the book, we have this whole issue where God says, you've not spoken what's true of me the way my servant Job has. We'll get to that. Very important subject. We'll get to it. I'm I'm, see, I'm realizing now more and more, it's going to take more than this session <laughs> to even introduce the, the book of Job. And then, when we get through with my little part, I'm going to hopefully point you to the resources you need to do your own digging and your own studying. But when you start digging and studying, don't be digging and studying for principles. Seek the Lord. Draw near to Him. 
Okay, let me wrap up my little introduction here because I'm, I'm in danger of not being able to finish even the introduction. When you open the book of Job, you have to deal with more than the idea that Job was afraid. Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that Job may have been afraid. One thing, for instance, that you see with Job is he made sacrifices to God for sin offerings for his children, lest they had sinned against God and and he didn't know it. Now that can that can there's a there's a certain degree of paganism in that, because you got to remember Job Job was not a Hebrew, and the sacrificial system that he was operating in may not have been uh, in line with the atonement theology that finally emerges out of progressive revelation of of the Old Testament. And finally, is completely made clear in the New Testament. See, well, that that brings up another subject I don't have on my list here, but I need to mention it. I, I need to mention it. Progressive revelation. The Book of Hebrews says, in times past, through through the prophets and through other writings, God has been revealed to a certain degree, but now. He has been completely revealed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the Father, the exact image of the Father. If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father, and anything that looks like other than Jesus is not a picture of the Father. We don't believe that. I know people who build their whole theology of God out of what they see in the book of Job. I mean, their whole theology about God is based on Job. It's not based on John 1. It's not based on Hebrews 11. It's not based on uh, the cross. It's not based on Jesus. It's based on Job. You, I'll tell you, if your only image of God is Job, then no wonder you're afraid no, you probably do sacrifices for uh, blood sacrifices to cover your children's sins too, because everybody knows God can't wait to kill your kids, and you better beg Him for protection. Uh, he's going to kill them. I know I'm being a little bit facetious, but not a lot, not a lot. Uh, many, many Christians serve God out of fear of what happens if they don't. Anyway, when you start delving into Job, you have to deal with progressive revelation, which I didn't have on my list. You have to deal with the character of God. What is God really like? Uh, we're going to look at some verses that really make you ask, well, what, is, what kind of God would do that? Well, God, God welcomes that struggle. He welcomes that question. Because he longs to give you understanding and draw you near to him and him draw near to you. Uh, you have to deal with the meaning behind creation. Why is there anything? Why is there a creation? Why? What's the purpose? You have to make room for that. Well, here's a third one. You have to deal with the nature of Satan. Why, why did Satan come prancing into the presence of God like he belonged there? And uh, what 
Or who do they think he was making a case against Job? Why? Why was he allowed to do that? What is Satan? Anyway, we'll get into all that. You have to, then we have to wrestle with the human error of religion. The human error of religion. Job had a mindset that matched the mindset of his three friends. They would have all agreed together if they'd been in a happy time with no tragedy to, to wrestle through. If they had not had a World War I breakout in their face and sorrow in every direction in Job's world. But when Job had tragedy that did not match his creed or his belief system, instead of agreeing with the creed, he questioned it because he knew God intimately enough to know that what was happening to him was not in line with the character of God. But his three friends were willing to destroy Job and crush him under their religious feet by saying, you know what the creed says, you know what we all believe, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and Job, you've got bad things happening to you, and therefore we know you must be a sinner. And we will agree with the creed no matter what you say you know about God, because we don't know God. All we know is the creed. They don't say we don't know God. They think knowing God, knowing the creed is the same thing. So we got to wrestle with the question of human error. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote these things down, that I was going to get all this done in one or two hours. Then the next thing we got to wrestle with is what I'm going to call the necessity of the panoramic picture of reality. What I mean by that is, in order for you to get anything out of Job, you've got to understand something about reality. God, even God, can't answer every question in a, a sentence. There are some things, you know this with your children, there are some things you love your children, I mean, yeah, you love your children, but they don't have the life experience or the vocabulary to understand the answer to the question. They, they, they may have the vocabulary and understanding enough to formulate the question, but they don't have the vocabulary and understanding enough to understand the answer. And the only way you could make them understand it is to destroy their personhood and turn them into some kind of pre-programmed robot, which you can't do anyway because you can't, you can't control that. But God could. God could make Job understand the long picture, and he does to some degree. I mean, my favorite verse in all of Job, maybe my favorite verse in the whole Bible sometimes. Uh, I remember when I first heard the soprano solo of Messiah from, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. 
I don't really care. Sometimes some of the commentators I've read talk about how difficult the Hebrew is in certain places, and that may not be the right interpretation, yada, yada, yada. I, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I learned to read the Scriptures with the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking the ultimate truth there to Job and then through Job that our Redeemer lives. And though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh will I see God. That's the gospel given to Job thousands of years before its fulfillment. But he didn't understand a whole bunch of other things. But you know what? If he understood that, it was enough to get him through what he did not understand. And then finally, the full revelation of Genesis is seen in the book of Job. The fuller revelation of Genesis. I want, uh, all, all I'll say about that in closing is this. When You've heard me tell this before, that when the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew to Greek, and, and was made available to the Greek-speaking, non-Hebrew-speaking people. Those who made the translations wept. And they, they, it was misunderstood. They were, why are they weeping? Uh, why, why, are, why do they not want to share their scriptures with us? And one rabbi said, no, no, you don't understand. We're not weeping because we don't want to share them with you. We're weeping because we're taking a beautiful color portrait and turning it into a black and white sketch. And all you'll see is the sketch instead of the portrait. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's the general idea. Well, Job, if you could read it in Hebrew, would tell you answers that you cannot get from Genesis chapter 1. And I have to dig these things out because I am certainly not fluent in Hebrew. But I know enough to know when I'm reading a lot of English stuff that I'm, I'm getting an accurate sketch, but I want to know the whole color portrait. And I hope to be able to help you find ways and give you tools to maybe be able to dig out your own gems from uh, this hidden treasure called the scriptures. Well, I don't know how many opportunities I've given you to <laughs> think, Clay, what are you talking about? Why don't you answer that question? Well, I can't do it in one hour. All I can do is stir up a bunch of trouble, a bunch of questions. What I can tell you to do, though, that will help you is ask the Holy Spirit to teach us Ask the Holy Spirit to teach us. Pursue your desire to delve into Job, not only for your own sake, but now as we enter into a new era of world tragedy, of world trouble, that is not going to go back to normal. We're not going to revert back to some quiet, pre-war, peaceful culture on many levels, then this is the time for us to maybe pull the curtain back and delve into the mysteries 
and the answers of the book of Job. Father, please guide us. Please deliver anybody out there listening from anything I'm saying that's not right. Uh, let it just fall to the ground if it's not right. But let that which is really born of your spirit, that which is in your heart, awaken us and reach us and touch us and take us all further up and further in until we finally reach noonday. In Jesus' name, amen.